Hey, it's Andrea. Today, we spill the tea on Captain Picard. Data screws up in a huge way. And we ask the question, how do you manage people who are older or more experienced than you? Stay tuned to find out. Welcome to the TNG Podcast, the number one place in the Alpha Quadrant to geek out about all things Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm your co-host, Sharice. I'm your co-host, Andrea. Sharice, today we are talking Season 2, Episode 15, entitled Pen Pals. This episode was written by Hannah Louise Shearer and Melinda M. Snodgrass and directed by Weinrich Kolb. I really hope I'm not butchering that, but if I am, I'm really sorry. Um, so here's the plot of Pen Pals. It is stardate 42695.3. Data receives a, a distress signal from an alien girl on a planet in the throes of geographic turmoil and responds to her communique violating the prime directive. Wesley is given his first command, leading a geographic survey team to study the planetary phenomenon. He must face the dilemmas that come with leading a team. Sharice, what are some of your initial thoughts on this episode? I I liked this episode. I really liked it. And not just because it was data heavy, because I have a little data bias, but I like this episode because of the prime directive um, concerns with it, like the ethics of it, I thought were really, really interesting. And, and as we'll get into it, even there's a point where data says, like, this is not just like some kind of intellectual debate, but this is an actual person. These are actual people who our decision will affect. So I really liked that aspect of it. I liked um, the new alien planet. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, overall I did like this episode. I thought it was, I thought it was really interesting. What about you? I agree. It felt like a season two episode because of just a little bit of the like costuming and alien creation sort of design issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like this episode. I have a few initial thoughts. I love that we get to see a little bit of Picard's like romantic side in this episode. You know, he's talking about horseback riding mm-hmm. and how, you know, like him and small animals don't really work, but him and these large animals, you know, you just have this shared bond and this shared goal. And I just thought that was really romantic sort of philosophy for Picard to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also <laughs> lovingly refer to this episode as the episode of the meetings because they have, <laughs> you can't have all the meetings in the AKA observation lounge. My everyday life, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't have all your meetings in the observation lounge. So some of them are in Picard's private quarters. Some of them are in the ready room. Some of them are on the bridge. Some of them are, they're just sort of all over the place. And I mm-hmm. recognize there's a lot of things you need to be talking about. And I do love that um, Weinrich, I hope I'm saying your name right, uh, really chose to kind of highlight you don't want to have just like multiple meetings in the observation lounge. Like you need to kind of find different places uh, aboard the Enterprise to make that work. So that was that was kind of cool. I did like this episode, though. Yeah. Um, This is, for me, a really big moment. (laughs) And I think I suspect for me alone, because this is the first episode. Sharice, prepare to have your mind blown or not, because again, this is only a big moment for me. <laughs> this is the first episode where Picard actually drinks Earl Grey tea. He had previously, you know, you see him like drinking tea in in prior episodes, but you don't know like what it is exactly. It could be, it could be Earl Grey or not. He had previously ordered a cup of Earl Grey hot from the replicator, but it was in the episode Contagion. And that's when they were having these computer malfunctions. So what he received instead from the replicator was a small potted plant. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time he said tea, Earl Grey hot and got it. And I was like, 
yes. Okay. Now Star Trek TNG really starts that at least for me, I like totally heard it out about that. We'll consider this the first episode of TNG right here, right now. Um, this is the pilot episode for T or gray hot. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) The pilot episode we should have had instead of the pilot episode we really had, which made us all amazed that the show got picked up at all. But anyway, absolutely. So before we get to the Earl Grey, which I drink every day, thank you, Picard. Um, so we start out with this discussion about these five planetary systems that have all been having earthquakes. And the scientist in me was like, what? Like literally when I heard that, I wrote in my notes, but wait, how, what's going on? How is that going? How is that happening? Right. (laughs) Like if I think about it from a planet standpoint of being on the earth, when you have a lot of earthquakes in a bunch of different cities, it's because those cities lie on a fault line. There's some, you know, there's underground activity happening between the layers of the earth's crust. And so I'm like, okay, well that makes sense why you could have earthquakes in far in seemingly far away places if we were to walk. But if you looked at the whole, you know, geography of that, like of California, which is where we live, then you're like, oh yeah, of course there'd be an earthquake in San Francisco, which could affect Los Angeles. Like, yeah, I could see that. But then on a planetary scale, that'd be like having an earthquake here, but also an earthquake in Mars. You're like, wait, what? Like there's yeah. no, and there's then no, Jupiter. And then it's like, yeah, you're like, is there some kind of ones, some kind of subspace fault line? I don't think that's a thing, but are they going to make it a thing? Oh my so gosh. Yeah, just, Cherise, that was exciting for me. I just saw in my mind, a bumper sticker that says my other car is a subspace fault line <laughs> 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 because somebody needs to start making that a saying. And it's probably going to be Probably going to be us. Yeah. As they're as they're talking about this geologically unstable set of planets, Riker said these planets live fast and die hard. And I was like, okay, Riker, no, he just <laughs> he clearly just watched Die Hard. Yep. yep. As a you know, but Jonathan Frakes just watched Die Hard, or the writer just watched Die Hard and decided to write that. In. I had the same thought, shoehorned, right? Like, who says that about planets? That doesn't even make any sense. They yeah. live fast and die hard. They're planets. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you even talking about? I I just, my eye roll was so hard. And you know that everybody's hand in the writing room was so sore from high-fiving each other because they just thought that was the most clever <laughs> effing line ever. Person C was like, I literally can't high-five anymore. <laughs> <laughs> over how brilliant this line is which is so we've not we've brilliant. already found the, the best line in the entire episode right <laughs> yes we have um and then we cut to picard is going writing and i love this mm-hmm. it and it's looks our first like i'm seeing him writing right yes and it is a thread that gets pulled mm-hmm. throughout the series that he's got like his own saddle and tack and all this stuff and i love that um by the way his costume is wonderful. It looks like he didn't even have to go to the costuming department. He was like, I'm just going to come in with my regular clothes today and you guys can shoot it. He had like a tweed flat cap and everything. And I swear to God, I know I've seen pictures of Patrick Stewart rocking the shit out of a flat cap as every good like Englishman does (laughs) like from time to time. And I was like, you didn't even have to go to costuming for this. Did you? (laughs) Like He was just like off the street looked like this. Um, so we see this like mutual, the bond of mutual need that he talks about between a horse and a rider. Um, and I thought that we're continuing to get like the softer side of Picard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do like that. We see this other side of Picard, like his interests, right? So when we see that he loves Shakespeare or loves music or 
whatever. He's very cultured, you know, loves archaeology. And here we see he loves horseback riding. You're kind of like, okay, you know, just getting a little bit more about who he is, is really special. And I do like, um, also this back kind of little background of, um, beta Zeds about how Troy says, like, we're not good with animals at all. And how Picard's like, well, I, you would think because you guys are so, you know, you're telepathic, you're empathic. I mean, you would feel the animals and be able to connect with them really well. And she's just like, we know we could just sucked up in the animals emotions and we can't tell ours from theirs. And it just becomes a total disaster. I thought that is fascinating. So whatever writer thought that up, I was like, okay, that's super curious. I thought that was super cool. It gave me a little bit of like avatar vibes where you like bond with your animal. And I was like, this is really effing cool. And I thought they probably wouldn't have been able to give us such an elegant explanation if this were season one. So this is where it felt like we were leveling up to season two. Uh, So I love that. I do have a continuity error. Upon arriving at the holodeck, the horse is already saddled. And then then in the next shot, Picard is putting the saddle on the horse. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. But why don't we just call it a holodeck glitch and and just leave Leave it at at that? that. And then later on, (laughs) we see not Picard, but his stunt double riding on the horse. And I'm watching this double going, why is his hair so thick and white? Like, that just looks weird to me. Like, I can tell it's a stunt double. And also, I'm not sure what the wig is about. And then when the scene cuts to a close-up and it is actually Patrick Stewart, I was like, wait a minute, Patrick Stewart's bald. They, wait, wait. Like, I was totally like, that's why I was thrown off by this stunt double's long, luxurious, like silver hair. (laughs) They they forgot to put a bald cap on this man before he went riding. Well, if I were, if I were to elaborate on that, Patrick Stewart is not completely bald as Picard. He's bald on top and has hair around the sides and like back of his head. Yes, that's true. He's not completely bald. But he also doesn't have a mane, right? Like no, you can, no, you can he rub doesn't. all, run all your fingers through it, and uh, yeah, <laughs> the stunt double you definitely could, and it sort of looked like a wig to me, so I was kind of like confused. But anyways, that that's HD. You wouldn't have been confused. I wouldn't have been confused back in the eighties when this was made. No, not in eighty nine. That wouldn't have even been a thought that crossed our mind. But to back up a little bit, just as Picard is about to mount, you know, he's talking to Troy about her Beta Z abilities to mind meld with animals, and she's explaining beautifully like how that doesn't actually work well with Beta Zs. And just as he's about to mount, he finally gets in the saddle, and Riker calls from the bridge. And I just wrote in my notes in all capitals. Give the people what they want. I want to see Patrick Stewart riding around on a white horse. This was like the worst timing for a calm from the bridge. I was like, ugh. So they find that this planet that they were studying has went from thriving to dying in just a matter of hours. And that's a major issue because I don't think we've ever seen anything remotely like that in, in TNG or in I any Star Trek. I remember seeing a planet like that. I, I put that in my notes too, that, that it's like smoky and fiery and that mm-hmm. planet just looked so epic. I was like, yes. like when they showed it on the view screen, I was like, whoa, because it was black and red and kind of like, you know, there was these lines through it that looked a little bit like electricity and the, the way that yes. they were shaped. And I was just like, this, this planet looks really amazing. And then they said, oh, this planet died. And I was like, oh, because I thought they were going to like visit that planet. I thought that's where they were going to set down or something. And they were yeah. like, no, it used to be like green and blue and beautiful, I guess, like our planet. And this is what it's become. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. 
Yes. Well, not only that, but we've seen dying planets on Star Trek before, but usually by the time the Enterprise gets there, the planet is already dying or in the throes of dying. And the Enterprise has to either try to save the planet or evacuate everybody from the planet. But to see a planet that goes from like thriving and just being perfectly fine to suddenly like imploding in the matter of hours is like, wait a minute, there is something catastrophically wrong with the the geological makeup of, of these planets. And, and then they have this, the first of many meetings and the team, and I mean, team like senior bridge staff debates, putting Wesley in charge of a geological survey team. And Riker says, you know, I'm in charge. I, I don't know why he is, but I'm in charge of like Wesley's like upbringing and education as a man. He, he, he decided that back in episode one of season two, when Wesley decided to stay on board and not go with his mom back to the Starfleet, you know, headquarters or whatever, when they kind of were like, all right, Beverly said you can stay, but who's going to take care of you? Remember? And then it was like, Riker, you're going to be in charge of him. Like you're in charge of his education, whatever. And remember they made that joke about Worf tucking him in at night. (laughs) Yes, I do remember that. So like, that's when Riker was like, all right, I'll take responsibility of Wesley since his mom's not here. Okay. So he did say, I guess that's fair. Um, he did say, you know, we're sort of in charge of of Wesley's like upbringing and, and becoming a man. So let's, let's give him this like geological survey team. And again, I'm not really sure why Pulaski is in on it because aren't there sick people in sick bay that you should be giving Pulaski's chicken soup to or something? Like you really don't yeah, need I to don't be- remember this, but- was was uh was O'Brien also I mean, there? He might as well have been. <laughs> he might as well have been. Why? Oh God. Why are you in yes. this meeting? What does this have to do if with you? If you at don't all? serve but, on don't the bridge directly, get out. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, th- I, that's a good point. Like she is a senior member because she's the only like chief medical officer. And why is she there for this discussion about Wesley's training? Yes. Like that doesn't totally make sense. Like it does. For I mean, that, that sort of begs know. the question, why are chief medical officers considered senior bridge staff? Because they don't work on the bridge. Like their main battle station is in sick bay. They don't necessarily make any decisions on the bridge other than perhaps yeah. the captain is not able to fulfill his duties and so must be relieved of command. Yeah. But really what are you actually doing there? But I always consider them senior, senior staff, yes. not just bridge yes. crew because, um, although, cause I always think of Jordy and how he's senior yes. staff, but he's not always on the bridge, but he does come on the bridge sometimes to work, but Pulaski just comes on the bridge to like nag people or whatever, whatever she comes yes. up on the bridge for not to work. Yes. Right. Cause she has no work to do there. So yeah, I don't know. We don't know how this, this structure works exactly, <laughs> but, but she's being there. That it's Pulaski. She's the first person to cast doubt on the decision. <laughs> Do we feel like that's the right thing to do? (laughs) Should we be giving Wesley any responsibility? Again, you can always count on Pulaski to be the poo-pooer of it all, right? And just say like, no, no, we shouldn't do it. I mean, I I don't think she had a really incorrect point. No, she wasn't wrong. You know, she, you know, I'm just realizing that Catherine Pulaski is kind of the George Costanza from Seinfeld. Like he's often not wrong, but his delivery (laughs) is so grating that you don't even want to hear him. (laughs) It's like, please just stop talking. Just stop talking. Yes. That's such a perfect connection. (laughs) I 100% agree. That's exactly the character she plays where you're like, she's right. But I just wish she would have said it differently. You know what? But yeah, you know what guys, Mm -hmm. you've heard it here first. The TNG podcast endorses (laughs) 
Catherine Pulaski as George Costanza. So, so they, they break the news to Wesley and he's elated, of course. And so he's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get to lead my own team. Um, again, though, here, here's a quick question I have. And I feel like maybe nobody asked this in the senior meeting. Does Wesley have geological background to lead this team? Well, I mean, he's an expert, so he knows everything about everything. He's a genius, right? I mean, so I guess it's a little he just, weak. He happens to know everything about everything. My thoughts actually were, man, this kid is lucky, right? Right. Because his mentor is the first freaking officer of the enterprise. Like if that's his mentor. How many people would kill to serve on the enterprise as adults who've been working their butt off Agreed. through the ranks in Starfleet from ship to ship to ship, just dying to land a posting on the flagship and he's getting personally mentored by the first officer, which means the team he has on his disposal is absolutely anyone he wants from the entire ship. Like I was just like, Holy cow. Like this kid is really, really lucky to have like these charismatic caring adults around him to give him this kind of Mm -hmm. experience that like grown adults who've been doing this for 20 or 30 years would die for like, they would not get the pick, pick anyone you want on the ship and they'll be your team. And also let's not forget that Riker is first officer of the flagship of the Federation. So that would be like me, a person with a like $99 telescope having Neil deGrasse Tyson come and mentor me about stargazing, et cetera, whatever. It's like, (laughs) are you serious, Wesley? This is like the most amazing opportunity ever, but he ends up, being, of course, like thrilled beyond belief that he gets to lead this geological survey team to try to figure out what's going on in this planet, which is a fair point. Like, we do need to figure out what's happening here because as far as we understand, like, there are beings that live on this planet and having your planet die, you know, sort of shortens your life expectancy a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a pretty big bummer. (laughs) That's an understatement of the of the solar system right there whatever solar system that is that's the understatement of the planetary system (laughs) so can we talk about data working on this personal project he's doing this like he's kind of tinkering with some sensors and whatnot on the bridge and the camera pans down and he's just got chips and tools linear chips everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. and Worf even trips over it. And I thought, number one, data would never work so sloppily. Why wouldn't you have a tray for like all your tools and all your shit to go into? You just don't have that willy nilly all over the floor of the bridge. It's like somebody gave a two-year-old with ADHD some Legos and let them just go to town. It's, they were just everywhere. And that yeah, bothered and it's, me. It's one thing if you have like a drunk virus that's making you pull out isolinear chips and throw them all over the floor. I mean, you're drunk. You're not in your right mind. But for Data, that is a little bit out of character for him to be like super messy and just like not thoughtful of that because he's an android. He's thoughtful of everything. So, yeah, but it was it was it was kind of funny to see Worf just being like, clean up your toys, sir. You know, and it'd be like, yeah, I'm going to put that away. Yes, it was just all over the walkway. And I thought to myself as a scientist, I was like, you know, you've got like trays and bowls and any number of things, especially on the enterprise, you could just replicate to like organize your Mm -hmm. workspace. That was working messy. And I was like, data would never do that. That's so out of character. Good point. Fair point. But the point of data's fiddling around with the sensors sort of becomes apparent because He's trying to kind of problem solve this geological instability in this planetary system from many different angles. And he's increasing the sensors and he detects this message that a little girl is sending and it says, is anybody out there? 
And Dana says, yes. And my immediate thought was, A, why didn't he report that immediately? Why didn't Mm -hmm. he report that immediately? Granted, he's like a seven-year-old robot, right? So he's got a lot to still learn. But Mm -hmm. when you get... He knows protocol. Yes, he knows protocol. He should have responded to that immediately. It... The, the episode jumps forward pretty quickly and it's like, okay, it's been six weeks or eight weeks since like we've started mm-hmm. at, analyzing what's going on in the system. And he still hasn't reported it. I mean, I could see you not reporting it, reporting it the first like couple minutes. Yes. But eight weeks later, you have been communicating with a pre-warp society and you have not reported this. What the F? Really, anybody in this situation where you know their planet is about to be destroyed and they're saying, hey, can anyone hear me? Can anyone hear me? Like that? Yes, that needs to be reported immediately and not just like keep chit-chatting for for over a month, for two months, just about, because they say six weeks and eight weeks. So whatever. For about two months, you're chit-chatting. Yeah. And you still have not said anything is a problem. It's a big problem. That is a big problem. And he... He should have gotten a reprimand on his like official record. Yes, at the that, very least. Was never at addressed. the very least. Mm-hmm. At the very least. We have this little captain's log as we come back from commercial. And it says, they, we've been in this star system for about six weeks. And then Data, two minutes later, says, eight weeks ago, I intercepted this transmission. So I was like, oh, I wonder if that's a continuity mm-hmm. error or a something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But What's at any on? rate, mm-hmm. it has been way too effing long <laughs> for you to not come to somebody and say, there's this transmission. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Um, meanwhile, Wesley, poor Wesley, is just waffling around because he's not sure how to lead a team, especially a team of people who rank higher than him, who are older than him, who mm-hmm. have more experience than him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually brings up a really great personnel question. I'm sure I've not been in that position before, but I'm sure many, many people have. How do you lead a team of people? who arguably could do the job better than you. What do you do? That's a, yeah, that is a really fascinating question. And I have been in that situation before, similar to that. Not exactly. I was not a child prodigy, so I didn't have those troubles. Therese, but I did become weren't a, you? Weren't you a child prodigy? Well, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't at all. But I did become a college professor at the age of 26. And I worked at a community college in New York City. So a lot of my students, people at community colleges tend to be um, a little bit older because they tend to be like coming back to school or whatever. So most of my students were also 26 or older. Plus at the time I looked like I was 12. So I had this going on where I'm in the front of the class teaching like medical microbiology and I look like I'm 16 years old. And, you know, every single class I taught, I was a college professor for gosh, I think five, five years or so before I started teaching younger um, kids. But Every single semester without fail, my first class that I taught, every student in the class would have a big smile on their face waiting for the punchline. They like always thought I was joking because I looked so young and I tried to wear like professional clothes to try to make it seem a little more legit, but nobody was falling for that. So class would start and I'd be like, hello, everyone. I'm Professor Alexander. Da, 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 and I would start writing on the board and everyone would be like, ha you know, waiting for the real teacher to walk in and be like, what are you doing? And I even had a student tell me once, you're going to get in trouble when the professor Oh my comes God, in. get out of here. They find you writing on the board. Yeah. And it's like, I, I'm, I just told you I was your professor. Like I wasn't joking. <laughs> I really am your professor. And it wasn't until the end of class when people would walk out and they'd be like, you just see this like look of amazement 
and date like their faces would be dazed as they're walking out like she really she like really led this whole entire class and I had this one student who was just like she was much older than me and she couldn't deal she just could not handle that I looked so young um and she was just like asking me all my credentials and all this stuff and how I'm like qualified and she was like well you know, you can call me Miss So-and-so. Like, I can't call her by her first name because I'm younger than her. No, I'm sorry. You signed up for my class, so you will be treated like all the other students. That just sounds like a major ego. That sounds like a Pulaski move right there, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't I can't fault her because, honestly, when I'm, like, looking up tutorials on YouTube and I hear, like, a nine-year-old's voice teaching me how to do something, I get that reaction, too, where I'm like, what are you going to teach me? And then I have to like check myself and be like, you know what? They're nine. They've been living in this technology longer than me. Let me listen to them. But it takes me a minute, you know? So that, that particular student didn't last very long in my class. She couldn't hang. Like after that class, she just, she like dropped my class. But um, yeah, what I found success with was showing my students respect, like treating them just like anybody mm-hmm. else with full respect. And I found so much more success than other teachers who were older than me who treated all of their students like idiots. Yeah. Like they were the smart professor and their students were like the dumb people coming to them for knowledge. And I always treated my students as, as equals. I happen to know something they don't and that's no one's fault. And I'm going to teach them. They know a lot of stuff. I don't. And they're, you know, I'm happy for them to teach me. And that I found a lot of success with that. And I can imagine it's similar in many other workplaces. When you create an environment of mutual respect, the age thing, the gender thing, the sexual orientation mm-hmm. thing, like a lot of those biases can fade away um, when trust is built. Wow, that is beautifully put. And I hope that anybody who's in that type of situation can learn something about like from your experience. I think that the Wesley issue does become a lot about that because removing the fact that you are commanding people at like different ages and ranks that might be above you. We also have to remember that Wesley is like 16 years old. So it's easy as a 16 year old to be intimidated by like an 18 year old, never mind like a 35 year old or whatever. So, so I actually really commend him. He performed admirably. He he really Mm -hmm. did. He really did. Um, And even before he took over leadership, he asked, he was talking to Troy and Riker, I believe. And he was saying, what do I do about personal com- personality conflicts? What do I do about this? What do I do about that? And they're just like, look, there's no easy answers. You're just going to have to learn like, you know, as you mm-hmm. go. And even that shows an incredible amount of wisdom. When I was 16, I didn't ask anyone's advice about anything because I knew it all. And I was always right. Yeah. Right. Like I just, I didn't ask anybody's advice and I just made the mistakes on my own. But even that shows a huge, um, part of his character that is really worthy of respect. And that's what makes him a good leader. Like if they could have developed the character in that way, like it would have, it would have ended up being really great, but they didn't. But anyways, um, that fact that just being open and being coachable to being like, okay, what if I don't know what to do? I can ask for help and I'm not afraid to ask for help and I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to act on it. I think is, is really admirable. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, who was surprising to me that that offered really great, like encouraging support was Dr. Pulaski. She was like, I think you're going to do this admirably. I think you're going to do a wonderful job. And that is one of the things that we may or may not like about Catherine Pulaski is that she's very matter of fact and sort of lacks some like key social skills. But in this episode, like she was really supportive of Wesley. She maybe didn't support the idea of putting him in charge at the beginning, but she seems to be sort of a pragmatist Mm -hmm. who's like, you know what? I don't really think you were ready, but 
everybody else decided you were. So let's just go ahead and move forward with that. And I'm sure you're going to do a great job. And I was like, you know what, Pulaski, I kind of wanted to give her the gold star for the episode because she really was like really helpful. Yeah, she wasn't as hateable. Again, an episode where she's not super hateable. And she has continued to be less and less hateable every episode, um, which makes me really rethink how much I hate her because she is kind of hateable at the beginning, but that's not her fault. I think it's the writing was just sort of rough and trying to figure her out. But now like we're getting to know her more and it's like, you know what? Okay, I could work with her. I could totally work with her. Um, So let's jump back to Data real quick. He reveals to Picard in a horseback riding scene on the holodeck that he has been talking to a young girl and Picard asks if her society is aware of interstellar life. And Data says, no. And did you catch it, Cherise? Picard says, oops. <laughs> did you yes. catch that? I loved it. It was so humanizing for Picard to be like, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also thought to myself as, as data's talking and saying like, well, yes, yes, we've been chit chatting for all this time. I thought to myself, this is why we need parental controls online right here. Data happens to not be a pedophile, but what if he was this little girl is just like chit chatting with some dude from who knows where for eight freaking weeks. Where are her parents? They didn't take that device from her. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was just like, I'm so not cool with this. She's making this close friendship with some random stranger from who knows where, given her personal information. Like, it well, just given given parental that, control, given that kids will be kids, I think that it happens much more than people realize. Agreed. Some parental controls would have would have been. Yeah, kids will be kids, and so in this situation, it's very similar. Data's not a creep, thankfully, and his interference in her life literally saved her, her entire people and her entire planet. Yes. So it worked out, but the context, right? Yes. Like this little girl shouldn't be besties with data. Like not even the- close, not even close. I think that, I don't know if they were like besties, but I think she was just so desperate for anyone to help. She was like, please, please, please help me. Um, okay. Here's something I have a problem with. At no point does Picard reprimand data for not reporting the communique sooner. At no point is he like, Data, I need to see you in my quarters or in the holodeck or in the fucking cargo bay or wherever we're having our meeting this time to, to chat about why <laughs> why you should have reported this. And Data, you know better. You know better. Yeah, or even, even when he says, oops, the next thing to say is like, well, that was a breach of the prime directive. And I'm going to have to put that on your record. Yes. Because I don't feel like he even would need to really explain that much because Data already knows better. Or maybe he would just need to say, remind him like, to remind you, these are our expectations. And for David to be like, I understand. A hundred percent. Yeah. At no point does he get reprimanded. It's just like, well, what do you guys think about this? <laughs> what? Agreed. Skip this step here. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and then as this episode is ought to do, it kind of bounces a little bit back and forth between the subplot and the main plot. Wesley is struggling with this first command and Riker does give him some great advice about responsibility and authority going hand in hand. And when Wesley wanted to order like some work to be done. Um, this other crewmate Davies was kind of like, mm-hmm. are you sure it's going to take pushing a long time? Back. You know, he was pushing back. But when Wesley actually came back to him and said, I really need that to be done. I really need you to run this like survey. Davies is like, no problem. And that to me really rang true. Cause haven't we all experienced imaginary battles that end up yep. kind of the same way? with bosses, yeah. with siblings, with whatever. You just, you've built up like line after line of defense against this person that you know you're going to like have a fight with. And when you bring up your mm-hmm. point, they're like, oh, okay. And you're like, what? Uh, oh, huh. <laughs> I 
it's very yeah. off-putting. Yeah. And it's, and also like if he would have pushed back when he first made that suggestion, the reaction probably would have been the same. Yep. Like the two were just like, ah, I don't think so. Like it's a waste of time. I'm not sure if he would have just been like, I understand your concerns, but I really want it done. They, I think they also would have been like, okay. Cause they voiced their concerns. They just wanted to let him know their thoughts. They weren't really antagonizing him or disrespecting him or anything like that. They were, he's so lucky. His team was super professional. Yes. They were just being very lo- logical saying, Hey, are you sure this could take a lot of resources? And if he would have said, I'm sure they would have been like, all right. But it took him to like think it through and then come back. Yes. And they're just like, all right, we'll do it. So, um, and then they even gave him credit for it later. Like, oh, it's because of his great idea. You know, if he, if we, if he would not have had us do that, we wouldn't have figured yes. out the solution. So yes, he got really lucky with a great support system and a great first team. Yes. I mean, if you're going to run your first team, you really do want it to be these people who will just yep. sort of just follow your orders. You know, they may have some pushback thinking that they might know better, but once you put your foot down, they're like, okay. That's exactly what you want out of a team. I love that. I love that. So we have another meeting, yet another meeting. And this time it's in Picard's personal quarters to discuss what to do. Because now we know that Data has majorly fucked up and been having this communication with this young girl on this dying dying planet, Sarjanka, which, by the way, is played by Nikki Cox, which those of you who may not know, she was in Unhappily Ever After in Las Vegas and a few other things. She was really big. in like the early two thousands. Um, and I'm not sure if she's in any current projects now, but I was like, Hey, that's Nikki Cox. I know who she is. Um, so, so we have this meeting to discuss what to do with data's communication with Sarjenka. And this is this big moment that I was so excited about as a T nerd. It's the first sighting of Picard having his tea in his classic mug that we know and love that's usually in the ready room. Now, for those of you who want to find a mug like this, it's by a company called Bodum, B-O-D-U-M. It's a vintage mug. It's actually from the 70s. And I thought that the uh, prop department did a fabulous job finding something from the 70s that looks like it would fit right in in the 24th century. For those of you who don't remember, it's the kind of mug that's like a glass mug, but you could like pop the handle off. It was really cool. So they're often found on eBay. Um, I just Googled like Bodum vintage black handle mug and usually the words Star Trek or Captain Picard and you might find them. Um, I did not realize until I found the mug and bought it that is literally so tiny (laughs) that it really only holds like one ounce of liquid. Um, So I have that one. And I realized that in all these scenes where Picard is drinking his Earl Grey in his ready room, he's taking like one sip because that's really all that it holds. Um, Yeah, it's like the future shot glass. Yes. (laughs) It's a shot glass. It totally is. They do make a bigger version, which I also have because I'm a super nerd. But yes, this is my this is where I drink my Earl Grey in my Bodum um, vintage black mug. But we'll put a link up to that on um, on our Instagram, the TNG podcast. It's often found on eBay. So there isn't one like particular store or like online store that sells them. You just have to sort of find them. But they are out there if you want one. Um, and they're having this great philosophical meeting as to whether to allow this girl, Sarjenka, to die or to save her, but you have to break the prime directive to do so. Like, this is a huge, this is a huge moment when you're sitting around in the captain's quarters talking about allowing this young child and her family and the rest of her society to die just because 
her planet is dying. I mean, talk about a heavy conversation. Yeah. And the, what I really like about this conversation is because they take, they go from the philosophical to the practical, right? They're all saying, you know, Picard is saying the reason why we have the prime directive is to protect us. It's to protect us from letting our emotions control us. It's to help us make sure that we're doing the right thing, even when our, our heart may be in a different place. And they're all just like, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the reason for the prime directive. And I, and I also was like, why is Worf being such a dick? Um, but yeah, I was just like dying in earthquake is not an honorable death. It's just totally senseless. So I feel like him of all people should be like him of all people should be like, what the, like, like, no, this is not a fitting death. And then we have, um, we have data chiming in and saying, this is not a philosophical debate. This is a person. This is a little girl and her family and a community and a planet. You know, like this is not just philosophically speaking is the prime directive a good idea. We're, we're asking the questions. Do we let them all die or not? That's the question we're asking. Yes. And it was just like, I mean, it was a really good conversation. And at the end, Picard was just like, we have to uphold the prime directive. It's like, that's it. That's it. I want you to cut off all communications with Sarjanka, which I think I told you before. (laughs) (laughs) Just to reiterate. Um, Just to reiterate (laughs) what I already said. Stop talking to this girl. And so he's like, all right, let me do it right now while we're all in this room. And as soon as he goes, beep, beep, beep. Then you hear Sarjanka, data, data, are you there? And it just melts everyone's Yes. Heart to hear this girl crying out, a real person, not a philosophical theory, mm-hmm. a real person asking for help. And Picard was just like, well, you know what? Screw it. Like prime directive, prime directive. Like that little girl needs her help. We need to help. I couldn't agree more. And Picard has this beautiful line that I'm sure the writer's room did not high five themselves over as much as the live fast, die hard bullshit line. But... <laughs> But Picard does say the whispers in the dark are now a plea for help and we must help her. And I thought that line was so expertly delivered by Sarjenka and she was just crying and pleading to be saved. And I understand why it just ripped everyone's heart out. But I thought to myself, you know, Picard says the whispers in the dark are now a plea for help and we must help her. What's the difference though? Like, honestly, nothing really has changed in terms of like the meaning of the prime directive. It's just become personal to you just now, which is kind of bullshit Mm -hmm. because if it's not personal to you, you just pull out the prime directive card and use it. But now that it's personal to you, the prime directive no longer exists. Goes out the window. And that's literally what he said. The prime directive is to protect us from letting our emotions control us. And when he heard her voice, his emotions controlled yep. him. Like that's exactly they what he sure saying. did. If we had never contacted <laughs> this girl, we would just let them all die. Yes. Um, which is what they do. They always, they always, I don't want to say interfere, but if someone asks for help, which was part of their philosophical debate, if someone cries out for help, if someone sends a distress signal, they always, always, always help. That's another one of their primary missions is to always help. Yes. But they always try to help in a way that doesn't disrupt the community where they are. And so in this case, the disruption is like the helping would be stopping the planet from dying like all the other planets in the system. Mm-hmm. So this helping wouldn't just be like, oh, your ship was about to explode and I, we helped patch it up. Yes. This is like you're about to be extinct. Yes. It's like the dinosaur is about to be hit with a giant meteor and they just like disintegrate it in space yes. and decide, nope, dinosaurs will rule the earth, you know? Yes. So this is a really big deal to a really big decision to make on their behalf. Um and, you know, I'm one for upholding the prime directive, but I think they made the right call. <laughs> I did not want to see that whole planet die. I just was like, come on, come on. Like, 
They don't need to know about, they don't need to know about warp technology. They don't need to know why their planet was saved. You don't even need to talk to them Let's again. Let's be completely honest. You'll beam down to the planet uh, that was like all the white supremacists <laughs> just to have sex with them all. But you can't break the prime directive to save these people from like geographic issues like come on that was just that was some bullshit right there <laughs> luckily though <laughs> luckily Sharice, wesley's team has already figured out why the planets are starting to break up and they're in the process of figuring out how to stop it so that's really yeah, really nice pressure to the rescue again thanks wesley. the crushers are crushing it i want a t-shirt that says the crushers are crushing it if somebody out there wants to make us a t-shirt please <laughs> we'll do it. i will buy it <laughs> Um, so data beams down to the surface and Picard is like, what the, what you want to beam down? Like one thing was communicating with this girl, but now you want to beam down and data kind of makes a point where he's like, we've come this far. I mean, honestly, like what's what part of the prime directive are we trying to not exactly, exactly. Like, it's once it's broken, it's broken, which is fair. exactly. So he's like, okay. So Picard's like, all right, fine. He kind of goes fine. And just lets him go. Um, and Data beams down, and I love that Riker says, O'Brien, take a nap. <laughs> yep, and then he's like, yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and take I'm, a nap. I'm dozing. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I was like, wait, why did he just, why did why did Picard tell Riker to go? I was confused for a second, and then when he told O'Brien to take a nap, I was like, oh, because they're breaking the prime directive and they want to spare O'Brien from having any part in it, and they want him to be able to say, I was asleep. I don't know what you're talking about. If you really are interested in plausible deniability, why not just send him to engineering to go like fix some random bullshit problem that doesn't really exist? And then by the time he gets there, he could be like, this isn't a problem. Huh. I'm going to go back to transporter room, whatever. And then he goes and then he's none the wiser about what happened, but whatever. Yeah. But I actually like that they did it this way because that's what makes me respect the crew of the enterprise, right? Is that there's no secrets. Like they trust each other enough. That's true. That when they're doing something wrong, they're like, Hey, we're about to do something wrong. Are you with us? Or are you against us? You know, like, are you with us? Or do you want to kind of take a nap right now? So you don't have to participate. You know, they always give people kind of that out. And the people are always like, no, we're with you. Like we're totally in. And that's like a throwback to the original series. They were always like that too, where it was like, are you going to do this with us? You don't have to. And it's like, Oh, we're in, we're yeah. all in. So I actually, even though, um, in practicality, it makes no sense. But as a viewer, I love it. Yeah. Like, I love that O'Brien's just like, yes, sir. And then he's like, oh, O'Brien, I need you now. And he's like, I just woke up from my nap. <laughs> like, I'm awake now. I'll take over the duties. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Data does beam down. And number one, if you have a chance to watch this scene, he's in Sarshenka's house and there is the creepiest looking doll in the corner of that room. I was like, 100% because the doll... <laughs> It's, it's a black face Chucky, which makes it so much yep. worse. Um, it's like a white baby doll that looks like Chucky and they just painted it brown because that's exactly what Sarjanka looks like. And, you know, maybe her whole entire people, I guess is what they're going for. So her baby doll would look exactly like her. Cause that's how we do it on earth. And then you see Sarjanka come in. And again, it's like a little white girl in blackface with this crazy troll like orange wig. Yes. Oh my gosh. This costuming. Wow. Yes. And not in a good way. The hair not in a good way. The makeup not in a the good thing way. I did think the super long fingers. See, I thought the super long fingers were creepy, but I thought if you're going to do alien esque twists on a humanoid form, 
make the fingers kind of different and weird. I could see that. I could go for that. I appreciated that they made like the last two fingers be like way longer than the first three or whatever. And I was like, okay, I get that. I, I from a from a mechanical perspective, was like, how is she still able to bend these like prosthetics? Well, she couldn't really. They were really floppy. And so with Data taking her hand, I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, cause the fingers didn't, cause the joints don't bend. It just was, I don't know. I was not a fan. How many retakes do you think they had to do when she took his hand and one of her fake fingers fell off and had to reset? Or just, like, bent in the wrong way. <laughs> like it curled underneath his hand because it's like three inches longer than her actual finger. I don't know. But anyways, Data beams down to Sarjenka's house. Sarjenka happens to come back when he's there in her house because she wants to get the communication device she left um, and so they run into each other and, and he's like, it's me data. And she's like, data, my best friend in the world and runs and hugs him. And she's like, I came back for this device because I didn't want you to try to contact me and then reach silence just like I did. And you're just like, Ooh, that was a good guilt trip data. I know data feels it bad was, about that, but she didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> I think she genuinely had this like heart of gold. That was like, I was met with silence and it was really confusing and scary. And I don't want you to go through the same. Sarjenka has, cause she's a child. She is a child. She has no ill will. Although I, I mean, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go out there on a limb and say, I've known some pretty shitty children in my time too, where they will just guilt trip you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Sarjenka wasn't trying to guilt she trip was him, not. But, she, but she succeeded though. in just being like, silence like I did and data just kind of like looks at his feet and it's like well where are your parents at yeah don't shouldn't you be with them no and it's just like well it's not safe here so uh two to beam up and O'Brien's just like what and he's like yeah two to beam up and he just beams her up onto the onto the ship like what the heck I'm so glad you brought that up because in my notes I wrote why would data beam her to the enterprise why would you do that's like the same as beaming the Edo up you don't Mm -hmm. need to be there you absolutely don't need to be there here's what you do here's what you do data is you come to the bridge (laughs) and you say what is the most geographically stable portion of this planet at this given time and let's beam her there so she can be safe and then we will continue to get on our fucking mission and solve the rest of the planet's problem don't take her to the enterprise another thing they could have done is said hey i'm i'm with another person here because they have the technology to know that with their their scanning beam for the transporter find the nearest you know dna that matches this right find the nearest pocket of these people 100 percent beam her like behind a bush or something but like to where those people are Cause I think if she just showed up, that might freak them out, but like, you know, beam her to where those, where her people are and just tell her like, Hey, we have this very cool technology. We're going to send you to some of your people. You'll be safe there until we fix it. Boom. But to just be like, you know what? You can't stay here. It's not safe. Come up to the ship was like, why? The only thing I thought that could be a saving grace is like, because she's a kid, no one will believe her when she says I was on a starship. I was looking at my planet. I was in the stars. People be like, no. That. I can see that. A lot of people write off what kids say is just like silliness. Um, Picard is nothing if not consistent because he sees Sergeant on the bridge and he goes, get that child off my bridge. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're seeing the, if it was a horse that was brought on the bridge, he would have been like, oh, hey girl, what's going on? And he would have been saddling her up and riding her up and down the bridge around wharf. And, and- <laughs> in that one circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been like, Dana, clip, clop, clip, clop. Have you seen my horse? And then ride over to like the science station and like Jordy. Yeah. yeah, no, but it was a child. And so he said, get that child off my bridge. Understandably, Sarjenko only trusts data and even though data says Mm -hmm. like these are my friends 
she is too afraid to leave him. So Data is able to get to work with Sarjanka next to him. And they she's holding his hand the whole time. And at one point, Data is so cute. And he says, I'm going to need my hand for this portion. Which is so sweet. It, which is super It was sweet. very sweet. And it was very parental-like. Just to be like, I, it was a way of saying, I see you. I see what you need. And... I need my hand for just a few minutes and then I'll hold your hand again. It was, it was the closest I think that data becomes to being a parent besides in future episodes when he, you know, when we go down that road about creating a child, but, but that's, that's for another day. But I thought it was like very parental. Like it was very, very sweet. Data gets to work executing this plan that Wesley's team has come up with and it works. The planet is now safe and they're able to kind of go to all the other planets and figure out this lattice structure instability. Thank you, Wesley. And and so these planets are now safe. And and then we hit this really sad moment. And before we hit the sad moment, just let's let's pause on that for a little bit because we can always wait to be sad later. Um, <laughs> going back to Picard being consistent, like when Sarjanka gets beamed up with data and O'Brien sees them, he's just like, oh, there's going to be hell to pay. And there's not. There's not, again, Picard sees Sarjanka and is just like, get this child off my bridge. He's not, he's not like, did you beam her off the plane? Yep. What did I tell you about the prime director? Yep. Nothing. It's just like, take your station. She can stand next to you. And you're just like, seriously? And I guess maybe part of what he, you know, the, the conclusion was we can just erase her memory. So it'll be fine. We'll erase her memory. She'll have no memory of anything happening on the ship. So it'll be fine. It'll be like, we were never here. And I guess maybe erase data. T- I'm not sure how far the memory erasure went. I'm guessing just to the point where she beamed on the ship. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but still, again, like, I feel like we needed some reprimands here. I agree. There was so many opportunities to be like, data, why were you having this unsanctioned communication with a pre-warp civilization child data why didn't you report it for eight fucking weeks data why did you go down there and bring this child back like and bring her onto the bridge like you could have dropped her off at the nursery or the or or sick bay or something like there's so many places where data made these like career ending Mm -hmm. mistakes and yet nothing happened so the inconsistency of that really does bug me a little bit um but they've made the planet safe And then Picard asks Pulaski, and this just broke my heart into a million billion little pieces. He asks Pulaski to wipe Sarjenka's memories to allow her to live her life as she was supposed to. And Mm -hmm. while I can understand that you need to sort of return her to that pre-warp, you know, lack of understanding of like interstellar beings, it was so sad because Data brings Sarjenka you know, to the sick bay, the, the land singing stone that she sees like in the sick bay was very cool. Yeah. So she goes to the sick bay. She sees the singing stone that Dr. Pulaski has on her desk and is able to like hold it. And Pulaski begins wiping her memory and doesn't say anything to data, but yet data intrinsically understands like what's going on. And it's really sad. And Data brings Sarjanka back to her home, you know, while she's still unconscious and leaves her with the singing stone, which from a storytelling perspective is sweet, but also wouldn't make any sense because if she has no memories of it, she would wake up and be like, what the fuck is this thing in my hand? And why is it making sound? And where did it come from? It's going to lead to more questions than answers. Exactly. I would, I would wake up and be freaked out. 
by that. Where am I? How did I get back home? Where was I before? What is this? Yeah. I think that that was more for data than for her. That was more of like a data saying, I'll never forget you. Like, I know this was special for you kind of yes. a thing. Yes. That literally only had meaning for him though, because Sarjanka's memory had been wiped. So yeah, that was dumb. He should not have left that stone. That was another reprimand. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You First of all, that was Pulaski's. <laughs> you totally stole that. <laughs> Secondly, well, I think Pulaski said you can have it or you can hold it. And I could see Pulaski. say you can have it. I, sure. I think Pulaski in another episode would be like, so Data, where's my stone? <laughs> I said you could hold it. I didn't say you could keep it. You know, and Pulaski is prone to pettiness. So, you know, she'd be like, if only I had my singing stone, I could do this job. (laughs) (laughs) Should be real peppermint petty about it. But anyway, you know, he brings he brings her back and he's able to kind of touch and open that door, which is such a cool special effect where you can open it. Behind the scenes, I did read that the production crew was running out of time to film this episode, and this touch door was such a huge problem that it kind of held everything up. They didn't think that they could do it, and they didn't think that it would be able to like be executed with any sort of proficiency to look believable, mm-hmm. and I don't know what kind of rings of fire they had to jump through, but it looked incredible. It really looked so beautiful to see this door that you touch and the door disappears. And then you can see that the planet is now, instead of a volcanic wasteland, it's now dormant and things are going to sort of be able to repair. And that was really sweet. Yeah. The, that touch door was so cool. And the volcanoes like right out of her front door that you could just see spewing lava everywhere was really cool, like terrifying and so cool. And you could feel you know, see everything shaking. I thought that was, that really made me feel like this was a real place. So I, I did like that. And I do also appreciate that Picard had Sarjanka's memory erased, even though that's sad, because like I just said, you know, people don't really listen to kids. So she could have sort of gotten away with it and being like, no, my friend from space. And people would have been like, okay, whatever. Yeah. But if she would have held onto that story for too long, it would have made her a complete pariah in her society and a mad woman. And I'm thinking of the movie Jumanji, which I love. And how like Robin Williams character as a kid gets sucked into Jumanji. Yes. And the girl who's with him is labeled a nut job for the rest of her life for saying that I saw Alan Parrish get sucked into a game board. Right. Like, you're right. Like it could have made her just like totally not able to do anything in her society if she would have clung to the story, which she would have because she was a child. So I think it was the right call. Well, really, the right call was for Data to not interfere quite so much. <laughs> but yeah, they saved the planet, so and saved uh. her life, and and you know, it's it saved Sarjenka's life at least long enough for her to go on to do unhappily ever after in Las Vegas. So you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly, <laughs> but you know, at the, I think you're absolutely right. It was a heartbreaking call to make. I like that Picard seemed conflicted and disappointed in the fact that he had to make that call as well. He didn't seem to take that lightly. And he was like, just, you know, wave your magic wand and make her memories disappear. Um, He really seemed to understand the gravity of that. And that to me, just like it really, this episode hit me in the feels so many times, Mm -hmm. much more than I thought it would when I hit play at the beginning. Um, Data then comes in to apologize to Picard for getting them into the whole mess And Picard is a little bit philosophical about it because we're seeing this like romantic philosophical side of Picard, which I mean, granted, I love, I love a good depth of character in Picard, but come on now, there needed to be like something put on his permanent record for fucking around with like a Mm pre-warp society 
and like you saved the planet and that is wonderful, but also you did a whole lot of things wrong, not least of which that you withheld this vital information from us for eight weeks. I mean, for two months, you sat mm-hmm. on this information that you have been like literally pen palling around with Sarjenka and said mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. That is like unbelievable to me that that would be allowed to just sweep under the rug. That just didn't make any sense at all. I agree. Totally agree. <laughs> well, Sharice, do you have any final thoughts on this episode? I mean, after our breakdown, I just feel like this episode was even better than I remembered. It was just a good episode. I, I think it, it was. was a good season two episode. It really was. It's it's definitely worth a watch. Please don't skip this one. This one was really good. And if nothing else, to just watch Sarjenka's super creepy long fingered hands mm-hmm. and really pretty <laughs> glitter makeup. So yes. <laughs> um, I did love this episode, but Sharice, I'm even more excited to talk next week about season two, episode 16, Q Who, because I think in my opinion, it is one of the top three Q episodes of all of TNG. So I am like salivating to talk about it. I can't wait to get to it with you. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. (laughs) Thank you so much for geeking out with us, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for geeking out with us. Be sure to join the crew at thetngpodcast.com to be the first to know when we do our live shows or host events exclusively for our members. We'll see you next time.